Right, let's let's just start. <laughs> right, right. We're we're doing um, our church life uh, series, and what we come tonight to tonight is the we we've already seen the two aspects of our work of faith and labour of love towards the Lord. All right, we've seen that there are three priorities, and the first one is towards God. The second one is towards each other in the family of the church. And then our third priority is to the world. And we've done the first one, our work of faith and labour of love towards the Lord. And we saw that the two aspects of that is that firstly showing him that we love him. And we saw that that was being a worshipping church. And secondly, it's, it's being obedient to him. He wants obedience from us. And we covered that last time. So towards God, it's loving him and it's serving him. Now tonight, we move on to our second priority, and it's our work of faith and our labour of love towards one another in the church family. And again, there are two aspects, and in fact, we're going to see they're very, very similar to the first one. Because the first one that we're going to do tonight is that we must be showing each other that we love each other. Now, that's exactly what we said we had to do towards the Lord. And then secondly, and we'll come on to this next time, is that we need to be serving each other. And this is our priority in the family of God to each other. And today, we're going to be looking at loving each other. This is what we're called to in the family of God. Now, you remember that what we saw last time was that part of the purpose of being in a church, part of the purpose that God wants us to be in a church, is in relationship to him, that he wants us to be growing up into obedience and maturity and holiness towards him. We saw that God wants us to be good and faithful children. And you remember I said that it's like father, like son. God wants us to be like Jesus. Jesus was like God, and because Jesus is in us, God wants us to be like Jesus. And we saw that what he wants to do is to sort out our lives and to deal with our sins in order to bring us into the life that he's already given us in Jesus. And that makes sense. Remember, we've seen that a church is a family. And in a good family, there is parental discipline for the children. But, and this is what we need to move on to tonight, also in a good family, children are not just in a disciplinary environment, they are in a loving one too. And this is tremendously important. In a good family, the children are in an environment where they're going to be disciplined, yes, but where they are loved by the other members of the family. Now, this is tremendously important. I mean, think about it. We've seen God wants to sort our lives out. He wants to deal with our sin. Now, you're perfectly aware, as I am, that in the very best of circumstances, it's not always very nice to have God sort your sin out, is it? Am I alone in experiencing that? No, I'm not. So God wants to sort our lives out, and we know that that can be tough. But you see, the thing is, that 
on its own, God sorting our lives out, could be a very negative and disenchanting thing all round, couldn't it? It's never easy, but the Christian life, God sorting our sins out, could potentially be absolutely horrible, couldn't it? Because who wants to be sorted out? And yet that is what God is doing in our lives. And so, you see, the thing is, because God knows how hard it is, and because he doesn't want it to be bleak and horrible and disenchanting, what he's done is he's designed things, i.e. given us the church, he's designed things so that this sorting out in our lives that he wants to do occurs over years, not all at once, none of us could stand that, but it occurs over absolutely years and that it occurs in an atmosphere of love and security because we are part of a family, we're part of a church. Can you see that? In a good family, children are disciplined and their lives are sorted out and that's right. But that's not enough because in a good family, the discipline comes in the context of the fact that they are loved by the rest of the family. And so we can see that we, how important it is, we are to love one another, all right? So then, we all know children, some of you have children, some of us don't, but nevertheless, we all know that discipline, if you had a child in a family, if that child was to be receiving all the training that it needs, how to behave, and punished if it did wrong. If it received that in an unloving family, then discipline would be bad for the child, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be good. But if that discipline is received in a loving family, then we know that it would be tremendously good for the child. And it's for this reason. Because in families and with children, discipline plus love equals emotional security. And the reason is this, because in a good family, even when a child is at its naughtiest and the discipline is at its toughest, the child knows that it is loved anyway throughout. Can you see how important that is? The child is loved regardless of whether it's being a good child and not much discipline, or whether it's being a bad child with loads of discipline. Nevertheless, regardless, the child knows that it is loved throughout. Just go to Hebrews chapter 12, because of course our concern is discipline in our lives because we are children of God. And if you find Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll start reading from verse 5, and the writer says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation which addresses you as sons? You see, we're children of God. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor lose courage when you are punished by him. And that word punish, elemco, it means rebuke. For the Lord disciplines him whom he loves and chastises 
every son whom he receives. And that word chastises, you'll remember from the Salvation series, mastigo, and it means in actual fact to whip or to spank. So there are times when God has to deal with us as children quite tough and we get what I call the laying on of hands on the other end, all right? But you see, the important thing here is that he goes on to say, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And that what we've got here is the very simple fact that God disciplines us. He sorts our lives out. He sorts our sin out precisely because he does love us. Not because he doesn't, but because he does love us. Now, God loves us, but he hates our sin. But the reason that he hates our sin is because sin hurts us. And I've said this before. Sin is not dangerous because God has forbidden it. God has forbidden sin because it is dangerous. It is that way round. God has forbidden sin because he knows it hurts us. And as he sorts our lives out and deals with our sin, he is doing the very best for us that he possibly could. And so you see, the thing is that in regards to this, we're seeing that as God deals with our sins, the church must be a good family, and therefore it must be done and received in an atmosphere of love. And so therefore we can see that our responsibility towards one another as a church is to make sure that we really are having love for each other. Otherwise, the Christian life will be far from a joy. The Christian life could become a terrible thing. Because, as you can see, if God sorts you out in a fellowship where you're not really loved, then on top of having God sorting you out, you have the pressure also of wondering whether other people are looking on, thinking, well, it's about time he got that sorted out in his life. And that adds a terrible pressure on top of people. So we've got to make sure that we are a good family and that the discipline of the Lord is working out in our lives, but in the context of an atmosphere and environment of love. So we must love one another. But in what way must we love one another? Go to John 13. John 13 and verse 34. And listen to this. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. He says, a new commandment I give to you. And the reason it's a new one is because uh, God had never given this commandment before. This was a totally new thing that the disciples were hearing. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, fine, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So what Jesus is saying to them here is he's saying, look, you must love one another, but that you've got to love one another as I have loved you. And the word there in the Greek is agape. Jesus is here saying that we must love each other with the very love of God itself. Go to 1 John, the first epistle of John. 
And in chapter 3 and verse 23, he says this, And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. So here it is, that we are commanded in the Bible, and this is a commandment, it's not an option, it's not an extra, it's not a perk that you can take out if you feel like it. It's the very basis of our church life. And it is that we love one another as Jesus, as God, loves us. So therefore, in order to understand more fully this way in which we're to love, we better remind ourselves of the way that God loves us. If we've got to love each other like God loves us, we better remind ourselves of the type of love God has for us. And what I want to say is that there is one basic, fundamental and tremendously important thing about the love that God has for us. In fact, I'd say it's the most important thing, and it is this. In love, in true love, there is acceptance. And that, I think, is what the Gospel is all about. It was God, in Jesus, providing a way to accept a sinful world that he could not accept because of its sin. The Gospel is about acceptance. And God loves us, each one of us, and he therefore accepts each one of us just as we are. God loves us and accepts us for ourselves alone. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Now look what Paul says. He says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The pinnacle of God's love was the death of Jesus. The pinnacle of God's love towards us was the death of Jesus. But the point is, the death of Jesus were whilst none of us were interested. Can you see? God's love shone brightest precisely when we wanted to know nothing about him whatsoever. And that God loves us and accepts us just the way we are. And that is the basis of all true love acceptance of the person for themselves alone just the way they are remember the older sort of Billy Joel song I, I love you just the way you are that is absolutely right now and in saying this it doesn't mean however that God isn't going to sort our sin out when we're talking about God accepts us and loves us just the way we are that does not mean that he's happy with us just the way we are. Can you see? You can love your child tremendously and yet be very, very unhappy about something it got up to last night. You know what I mean? Those of you who are parents, you know exactly what I mean. And the fact that you say, I've got to do something about that, this child of mine has got to learn, you're saying that because you love it. So in saying that God accepts us how we are, we're not saying that he isn't going to sort out our sin. He is going to sort out our sin. But remember, he is going to do that precisely because he does love us. But what it means also is this. You are not loved any more by God when you come into victory 
over sin. That is tremendously important. You are not loved any more for coming into victory over sin. And that means conversely that God cherishes you and I as much as when we're in abject defeat as when we are in victory. God's love towards us, his acceptance towards us as we are never changes whether in victory or whether in absolute defeat. And that any attempt in the Christian life to try and grow and mature as a Christian in order to gain greater acceptance from God, any attempt like that is doomed from the start because it totally misunderstands the Lord himself. You see, the Christian life is not becoming more set apart from God, for God, in order for him to love us more. The Christian life is becoming more and more set apart for God, precisely because we're all the time realising how much he does love us and accept us. So that maturity and being obedient to the Lord is not to secure acceptance and love. You have that from Father anyway, if you're a Christian. But we grow in the Christian life because we are responding to the love he does have for us. Go back to 1 John. And we're going to be in 1 John quite a lot tonight. 1 John in chapter 4. Verse 10 first, and then verse 19 in verse 10. He says this, he says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. So John is saying there, love originates not with us, it loves with God, it, it, it originated with God. But then go on to verse 19. He says, we love because he first loved us. So maturity and increasing obedience to the Lord is not in order for him to love us and accept us more. It's precisely to the proportion that we're realising just how much he loves us and how much he accepts us just the way we are. It's the response of our love to God's love. Because God loves us so wonderfully, therefore we are going to want to return that love and serve him. But we must make sure that we never ever have even the slightest thought in our mind that if we come to greater victory over sin, that God loves us and accepts us that bit more, he doesn't in any way at all. Let's, let's just, at this point, see the motives that God has in his dealings with us. You'll see why this will become important in a very short while. Go to Romans 8. If you really want to know someone, especially in how they relate to you, discover their motives, that will tell you a great deal. In Romans 8, 28, a verse that I hope everyone here knows off by heart. Romans 8 and verse 28, Paul says this, We know that in everything God works for good with those who love him and accord according to his purpose. Now that verse tells us God's perpetual motive towards us. It's to do us good and it's to bless us. 
in everything God does in our lives, that is his motive. That is what is motivating him. He wants to bless us and to do us good. In Jeremiah 29, verse 11, don't actually turn to it, we have this, I know my thoughts towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil. So the point is, when God convicts us of sin, he's doing so from this motive. He's convicting us of sin, which we don't like. It's not easy to take. But when he convicts us of sin, his motive is to do us good and to bless us. You know as well as I do the times when God tells you to do the very last thing you intended to do or wanted to do. Have that experience. Again, that is not easy. I mean, who likes it when God is convicting you to do the one thing you basically vowed in your own mind you would never do? That's tough to take. But when God tells us to do that, his motive is the same. It's because that thing he's commanding us is going to be good for us, and that thing is going to bless us. We know what it's like as well when God takes something away from us that is really important to us. The thing may of itself, there might be nothing wrong with the thing, or there might be something wrong with the thing, but one way or the other, again, we all know when God withholds something we want, or takes away something that we were hanging on to. Again, when that happens, it's not easy, but his motive for doing that is his love. It's to do us good, and it is to bless us. That is his motive in all things. Now, in this discipline, this sorting out of our lives, which involves those things we've just mentioned, it's important to realize that God knows that it hurts us, but he takes no pleasure at all from the fact of knowing that it's hard for us. Go back to Hebrews 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we've already looked at a, a couple of verses here, but in verse 10, and Paul here, uh, the writer here, is comparing God as a heavenly father to earthly fathers. And he says, for they, i.e. the uh, earthly fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time at their pleasure. But he disciplines us for our good, that we might share his holiness. You see, the thing with earthly fathers and parents is that because they themselves are sinners, Maybe the children honestly do need to be punished, but have been driving the parents up the wall. Therefore, it's right that the parents do punish their children when that's happening. But because the parents are sinners, you can actually gain pleasure that you've punished your children. I'm not necessarily talking about beating them half to death, but can you see, you know, maybe eventually you say, Johnny, go to your room and don't come down again. And then you slump in the chair, oh, thank heavens he's gone. <laughs> now, that is parents disciplining children for their own pleasure. God does not do that in any way at all. God is totally unlike human parents. When he does discipline, he gets nothing out of it whatsoever. He is doing it only because he knows that it is needed in order for us to grow into him and to share his holiness. And it's like when God is dealing with us, all right, say we've sinned and God says, right, you're not going to get away with that. 
and God won't let us get away with sin. I hope we don't want him to. I hope we've all said, Lord, don't let me get away with it. If I get out of order, you deal with me. I hope we have all prayed that, all right. But when we do come clean, what does he do? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So that as soon as we admit what it is he wants us to do, as soon as we've apologised to him and confessed it, it's absolutely gone. That is God's love. And there is no record of it whatsoever. Again, earthly fathers can't help but kind of have a black mark book for Johnny, can they? Can you see? I mean, earthly parents are just like that. But with God, there is no black mark book. When we confess, it's, it, it's gone. I've said again and again, if we come to us, oh, Lord, I've done it again, he says, what, have you done that before? And he goes through the records. No, sorry, no record that you've ever done that before. Now, that is the love God has for us, even whilst he is dealing with our sins. Now, here is the main point, and this is why I've had a, a look with us into the motives that God has. Here is the main point. With a God like that, you can feel secure with him. Now, can you see the point? You can feel secure with a God like that. And because you feel secure with him, you can also feel safe with him. Now, why can you feel safe and secure with God? Well, for this reason, because he's not after you. He's not after you. Remember, we're reminding ourselves of God's love for us in order to understand the love that we must have for each other. And you can feel safe and secure with a God like that because he's not after you. His motives are pure. He is not using you for his own selfish ends. He's not trying to get one over on you in order to make himself look good at your expense. He doesn't want to hurt you. Neither does he want to demean you or humiliate you. Shall I tell you why? Because you're no threat to him. Isn't it lovely not being a threat to God? People who, who humiliate you and demean you, it's because you're a threat to them. There is no threat to God. He's absolutely 100% secure in himself. And also, he's not out to con you because you ain't got nothing he needs because he owns the whole universe anyway. Can you see? Therefore, when we see God's motives, we can see why it is okay for us to feel safe with him. He is concerned only for our own good. He has no wrong motives towards us whatsoever. When God convicts us of sin, all right, it's because he wants us to deal with that sin and be set free from us. He is not taking any pleasure whatsoever because God doesn't have a dented ego. He is taking no pleasure whatsoever from having the authority over you to convict you. There are some Christians, if they can convict, if they can be used to correct you, oh, they love it. Or oh, the feeling of power and authority. There's none of that in God. He gets nothing out of it whatsoever. In other words, you can trust him. You can trust him. And because you can trust him, you're going to feel secure with him. Now, remember what I said earlier about children. 
is that discipline plus love equals emotional security. And we can feel secure with a God like that. It's interesting because our English word security, it comes from two Latin words, say, which means free from, and cura, which means care. So security literally means free from care. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32, Paul writes the Corinthians and he says this. He says, I would have you free from anxieties. Now, the Greek word for anxieties that Paul says, I want you to be free from them, and remember, Paul is writing the word of God. This is God speaking through Paul. And God says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The Greek word for anxieties is amorimnos, and it literally means free from care. It means security. So when God is saying, I would have you free from anxieties, he says, really, I, I, I want you, I would have you feeling secure. Uh, go to Matthew 6, and we'll see this again. This same word, Matthew chapter 6, and verse 25, when Jesus says, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your lives, what you eat, drink, nor about your body, what you put on. And he says, look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can have add one cubit to his span of life? Now here is Jesus, and it's exactly the same Greek word. Jesus is saying, I want you to feel secure as Christians. And the reason? Because Father's looking after us whether it's in regards to the food we eat or whatever, material things, spiritual things, whatever, Jesus is saying, I want you to feel secure because Father is looking after us. And another thing about God's love for us as well, and if you go to John, back to John 13, is knowing as well that because of the love that God has for us, he will never, ever drop us. He will never leave us in the lurch. He will never wash his hands of us. John 13, verse 1, I love this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, now listen to this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. God loves us right to the end. He will never, ever leave. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So can you see? Absolutely secure in God's love and yet forever and ever and ever go over to Romans 8. The end of Romans 8. And Paul says, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine? And he goes through a list. He chucks in everything he can think of all right, and then he ends it, nor anything else in all creation, just in case he'd missed one out, <laughs> all right? So he says, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love for us is secure and it is eternal. And that is why it's important for every believer to know that they are eternally secure. That is why it's so important for you to know 
Not be, not trying to convince yourself, but know 100% from the Bible that you can never lose your salvation. Go back to 1 John and find chapter 4. One John four verse seventeen, he says, "In in this is love perfected with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment." Well, what does that mean? Well, come the day of judgment, you're not going to be chucked into the lake of fire. He says, "I want you to have confidence about that," and he says, "There is no fear in love." But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and he who fears is not perfected in love. John is saying here, look, there is nothing to fear, and fear is the opposite of security. Someone who is a frightened person is an insecure person, and a believer who thinks that God can yet one day drop him, and he can end up in the lake of fire, is not going to be a secure believer. He is going to be a frightened believer. And for this reason, if a Christian doesn't know beyond doubt that he is eternally secure, there are only two ways he can face that. One is to be frightened and to live his life in a fear, knowing that he's got to serve God well or he'll end up in a lake of fire. So the bondage of fear is one thing. Or the other thing is that some believers, they deal with it by just blanking it out of their minds and it's a subject they don't let themselves really think through. And yet the point is, subconsciously and emotionally, nevertheless, that lie of the devil that they might even yet end up in the lake of fire is going to eat away from them from the inside and they are going to be the opposite of secure and yet we're seeing that secure absolutely emotionally secure in God is what he wants for us just go over to Colossians chapter 3 Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3, look what Paul says. He says, For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Why do I believe in eternal security? Well, look, here, we all know we're in Jesus. Well, that's secure enough. But here, Paul says, your life is hid with Christ in God. And that what God has done is he's taken us, and he's wrapped us all up, and he's put us inside Jesus. And then he's wrapped Jesus up, and he's put him inside himself. So you're inside, you're inside Jesus who's inside Father. Now then, believe me, can the devil get through Jesus and the Father to get you out? It's what some people call our double security, hid with Christ in God. You cannot get safer than that. Right, okay, can you then begin to see what this is going to mean for our relationships with each other as a church? We are to love each other as God has loved us. We've reminded ourselves of how God loves us and primarily accepting us just the way we are and the security in that. So we've got to kind of ask, right, so how then is it going to be amongst us? Now, what this teaching in the Bible boils down to is this. It means that as children of God, each one of us has been given an absolute divine right to be placed as part of a church, a local family of God, 
where we are loved and accepted in this way. Can you see? God has given that to each one of his children, the divine right to be part of a church that loves them in that way. And the reason is because when you're loved in that way, it creates just the right environment that God wants in which he can sanctify us and enable us to grow into holy and mature believers. Can you see? We've said it's not easy that God is dealing with our sins. But I'll tell you, it's a whole lot easier if you're in a church of people who love you and accept you just the way you are. But it is a whole lot harder if you are in a church of people who don't love you and accept you just the way we are you are. Because one of the things is that you'll all the time be wondering, I wonder who's pointing the finger? Or if God convicts you of something. And maybe you have to go and say sorry to somebody. I mean, who needs the thing, oh my goodness, they're, they're going to lord it over me. You know, I'm going to get a, I, I told you so. Can you see how important it is that we love each other in this same way that God loves us? We must provide each other with an environment of emotional and spiritual security. Back to children again. Discipline plus love equals emotional security. But a child who gets discipline and not love will grow up to be screwed up. We've got to provide each other with this environment of love and safety. Now, there are many, many Christians today who are insecure. They are the exact opposite to what we've seen God wants for us. They are desperately insecure. And I'll tell you, when I've seen some of the fellowships that they belong to, I am not surprised. And I mean that. I am not surprised that they are spiritually and emotional insecure, uh, emotionally insecure. See, for some Christians, the sad truth is, is that it's their churches that are the primary cause of their spiritual insecurity. And their churches are simply compounding and strengthening in them the very thing that God wants to set them free from, insecurity. God wants them to feel secure and loved and accepted, so their churches make them feel insecure. Kind of give them the idea that there's a standard that you've got to struggle for, and if you're not doing your bit, we don't want it. Can you say? For many Christians, their churches are one of the things that are damaging them most in their spiritual lives. Now, what I want to do is to outline three examples of what I would call bad churches. Now, I'm not talking about particular churches I'm going to name. But it seems to me that, you know, sort of from the travelling around I've done and all the Christians that I've known, there are three general types of fellowship which are guaranteed to be bad for you and which are guaranteed to produce the exact opposite to what we've seen God wants for us. Number one, it's churches and fellowships that just want to get your life sorted out and just 
want to get you holy. And that's it. That's what they want. They want to get you sorted out and right with God, mature, obedient, respectful. That's what they're about. Never mind your fears and difficulties. Don't worry about the problems you're facing in life. Don't worry about the, the circumstances that you're in. Look, mate, you're a sinner and you get yourself sorted out before God. And what they say is really, in effect, they're saying, God wants you sorted out and we're going to help. There's a look of glee in the eye, normally the elders, when they say it. And so everyone sort of piles in. These, these are the churches and the fellowships which are authoritarian and legalistic. They're the churches that have the strong arm approach. Uh, and believe me, you never know, if you're in one of these churches, you never know when an elder's going to pop up from behind a hedge and rebuke you again. Do you know what I mean? Living in fear. <coughs> It will be discovered that you've done something unwise or, or that you've sinned and bang, the authorities of the church are going to be down on you. Now, that is a very, very bad type of church and fellowship to be involved in. And for this reason, you see, unloving and authoritarian families produce insecure problem children. And we all know that, don't we? It's the same with churches. Right, second example. And it's churches that exercise no authority or discipline at all. They're what I call the nice churches. Everyone smiles a lot at these churches. But the truth is, in nice churches like that, people can get away with murder. And the reason that they can get away with murder is because no one is ever corrected for anything except rocking the boat and spoiling the niceness. Now, we all know churches like this, don't we? Anything goes, all right. Now, what happens there is that individuals in the church can become the innocent victims of the sins of other believers and there is no one to step in and protect the victim. Can you see? If you don't have at least some authority then people who aren't right with God can victimize you for instance and the church won't do anything about it because it would rock the boat and it would spoil the veneer of niceness. Now, I kid you not about this. When I give examples, you know, and, and this kind of thing, believe me, it is all based on either my own experience or the experience of others that I have verified for myself. I don't make these things up. These are things that I know to be true. And I'll give you an example of a friend of mine who was at a church, still is at this church, and it's a nice church in the nicest possible way. Now, there was a woman there who hated my friend and made no bones about the fact that she hated my friend. My friend had not, to her knowledge, done anything against this woman. And the woman had never indicated anything that she thought she had done wrong. But this woman hated my friend. Now, this 
church is one of the ones that does, you know, like their commune is a little bit of bread and a little sip of wine, right? And the woman who hated my friend was a deacon. And in their system, the deacons hand out communion. Now, if my friend went up for communion, and this woman who hated her was doing the communion, the woman passed her by. She wouldn't give it to her. And this was going on publicly, and everyone in the church knew about it, including the leaders. Now, that is not love. Can you see what I mean? A church like that is not good for you. Because people can become victims of the sins of others with no one to protect them. And in actual fact, once when I was there preaching, I, I thought, this is time to step in. And so I spoke to the leaders about it. Would you believe that was the last time I spoke there? But can you see the point? That in a situation like that, in churches like that, you are just left to your own devices. And what happens is that people let you, by and large, get on with your own life. As long as you come to the meetings, and as long as you put your money in the collection, you're one of the boys, all right? You're in. You're in. Okay. <laughs> Membership forms floating in front of your eyes. All right. And then once in, you basically just get on with it. And if you become the victim of someone else's sin, well, don't worry about that, because if you do anything about it, that will cause controversy, and it won't be a nice church anymore. And so Christians in churches like that, they get lonelier and lonelier and lonelier and even become innocent victims in a so-called church where they are supposed to be in an environment of love and protection. So, churches like that are no good either. We've seen that authoritarian, strong-arm, unloving families produce insecure problem children. But you see, libertarian, anti-authority families produce insecure problem children as well. Can you see? To have discipline without freedom and love will produce emotional insecurity in a child. But in the same way, a child who can get away with murder and there is no discipline on them, also they will grow up with tremendous problems. And can you see how Christians become the victims of the type of church that they're in if those churches are not providing that balance of love and authority. But the third type of church that is not good for you at all, and it's the performance-oriented church. These are the charismatic ones. All right, the, the performance-oriented one. What it means is this. If you've got a dramatic miracle at ministry, it's straight to the top in these churches. If you've got a healing ministry, or if you've got a dramatic personality, or if if you're a performer, if you can get a crowd and get results in churches like this, you're straight to the top. Or, alternatively, if you've got a particularly fertile imagination, along with sufficient gall to expect people to uh, believe that your daydreams are visions, you will also go straight to the top. I kid you not, again, example, true examples, I don't make them up. I can see a field of poppies, <laughs> all right? And, I mean, 
friends of mine have sat in a meeting, you know, when sort of these national leaders, you know, this, this particular one female, Oh, I have, I can see a, a field of poppies and everyone gasps. Oh, she's having a vision, she's having a vision. Two years later, people are trying to find out what it meant. I'll give you a better one, same person. Would you believe in a national meeting she had a vision of a rice pudding? I'm not joking. Greatly admired, greatly sort of respected for her prophetic and spiritual insight. I mean, can you see? Straight to the top. And it's terrible there are churches like this. But, you see, and here's the point, if you don't have a dramatic ministry, well, then really you're, you're just not in. I mean, you can come to the church, yeah, please, but you're, you're not with the in crowd. You see, in churches like this, if you don't make the ministry team, you're socially finished. And you see, you're no one, you're no one. Uh, but even worse, though, is that, that you might have a problem that their dramatic ministries can't help. <laughs> so, so you say, I've, I've got a problem. And the ministry team gathers around, you know, and sort of out come the file of faxes, and, well, who knows, in four months you're in there with an appointment. And if you don't come through, you're in trouble. Because you not coming through is a threat to their dramatic ministries, then I tell you, you are a leper. And they don't want to know you anymore. Now, I am basing this on the actual verified experience of Christians I know and have known in churches they have been in. I am not merely parodying it. It sounds like a parody, but it's not. That is how far some churches have gone astray. It sounds like a parody. It's not. These are facts. And you see, in these performance-oriented churches, if you haven't got the ministry or the right personality, then your life in a church like that becomes that of a pleb. <laughs> it becomes that of an endless round of meetings when you have to sit and watch and admire those wonderful people with the dramatic ministers in the church parade before you for all to see. And I'll tell you what the dramatic people in churches like that will do. They will give you, the plebs, an inferiority complex. And then, when they've given you an inferiority complex, they will then tell you that you need ministry from them to get delivered from it. <laughs> Now, does it surprise you that people in churches like that have long since just given up on their Christian lives? They're just accepting that they're a pleb and at the very best they can support the, you know, the big boys in prayer and they feel that they're making a contribution. Really, they've given up in their hearts. Or there are other people all the time straining around trying to become a little bit more dramatic because that way they might at least gain acceptance into the clique. Sorry, the ministry team. All right. Now, let me tell you, that is poppycock and it is humbug. Absolute humbug. Those three types of church that I've told you are the exact opposite to what the Bible says a church should be because none of them represent in any way at all loving one another with the love of God. Let me 
say three things about this church, the Chigwell Christian Fellowship. Number one, we don't want to sort you out. God wants to sort you out, but we don't. Why don't we want to sort you out? I'll tell you, because we're too busy as individuals getting sorted out ourselves by God. And we know that only God can do it. All right. Our concern and burden here is to concentrate on providing for all of us the loving, accepting and secure atmosphere of the family in which God can get on with sorting us all out safely. But what we are not doing is concentrating. We are not playing spot the sin, spot the undealt with area. Um, you know, you, you won't be summoned before the elders in the sense that some fellowships do it. There's a time for correction, yes, but we are not out to sort each other out. That's the first thing. And then secondly, none of us, no matter who they are, are going to be allowed to get away with murder in this church. We, because we love each other, will prevent anyone from being harmed by the unruliness or arrogance or resentment by individuals who consider themselves to be above the law of love on which a church family is based. Can you see that? If we were to allow individuals to disrupt the family and to bring hurt to people just because they weren't willing to have their lives sorted out before God, if we were to let people like that get away with it, we would be failing in our love for one another because the fellowship would then not be a safe place to be in. Now let me make it quite clear, none of us will ever be safe from God in this fellowship. Do you see what I mean? But we have got to be safe from each other and we have got to be safe from any potential troublemakers that God ever brings along. Because you see, uh, that Satan ever brings along. Because the thing is that when you get troublemakers, all right, or people who bring disruption, what they do is they rob the rest of us of our divine right to be in a peaceful, stable, and secure environment in the family of God. So none of us are safe from God, but we are going to make sure that as a fellowship we are safe from any threat through people's undealt with sin. Can you see that? There will be no love amongst us worthy of the name if someone was free to come in here and have a crusade against someone, much as my friend I told you about at that church. That just wouldn't be love. And if anyone here, anyone who, any of us, me, Robert included, if any of us get out of order in regards to other people so that they're becoming the victims of our undealt with sin, then there will be, you know, a movement against those people. They will be dealt with. And they will be dealt with sufficiently severely to make sure it stops. And if that means saying, don't come here again until you have repented of your sin against that person, if that's what it takes, 
then that is exactly what is going to happen. Because we've got to provide the safety. And if people, if we can get away with murder, then none of us are safe at all. We must make sure we protect for each other the emotionally stable and secure environment that God wants for us. And then the third thing is this. What is the basis of our acceptance of you as an individual? All right, people come into our fellowship. What is the basis of our acceptance of them? What is the most important thing to us as far as that person, that individual is concerned? Is it their ministry? No, it's not their ministry. Would it be their potentially dramatic personality and spiritual insight? No. No, that is not the basis of how we think of people. Would it be uh, the number of people that uh, you bring to the Lord and get baptised with the Spirit and healed and delivered before breakfast every morning? Is, 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 is that the basis of our acceptance of it? No, it isn't. Is there anything left? I asked myself. Yes, there is. Look, there is one thing left. You are left. What is the most important thing about you as far as we are concerned? I'll tell you, you are. You are the most important thing about you as far as the rest of us are concerned. I am the most important thing about me. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? And what we're saying here Acceptance in this fellowship. If, I mean, if, if, you, if God uses you to bring people to the Lord and, and to heal people, fantastic. But don't expect to be accepted more than someone whom God doesn't use like that. That's not the basis for acceptance in any way at all. Look, gifts, ministries, results, ability, personality, performance, all these things are entirely secondary. They're just to get a job done. That's all. Let me ask you, and I'd love to sit in one of these performance churches and say this, have you got a ministry? Well, bully for you. So have I. So what? What's, what's that got to do with anything? Can you see? It's you we want, not your gifts and performance. And I sincerely hope that it's me that you want. I hope... <laughs> Vivian's sitting there shaking her head. Oh, 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 Lord, Lord. He, heal my damaged emotions. Oh, dear. No. Can you see? I hope you don't just want me here because I can teach the Bible. I hope you want me here because I'm me. Because I want you here because you're you. Can you see? What, what folly to assess people by their ministries or the outward way in which God uses them. I'll tell you, and I'll be frank here, I've known some Christians who God uses in a mighty way. If you want results, boy, these guys and these women, they'll bring you results. But I have got to know some of these people, and I'll tell you, give me an evening with you here any day. Because I've known people who get results, but they're not people you'd want to get to know. Not at all. Their arrogance, their pride, their spiritual superiority. The knack they have for making you feel like a pleb. I'm not kidding. 
I'm not kidding. I'm talking, I could name names, but I'm not going to. National names. And believe me, some of the, if you want to read through the fruit of the Spirit, well, my goodness, it's the exact opposite to the kind of minister that we seem to be churning out today. We are so worldly in the church today. We admire people for their ministry. What folly. Admire someone for their faithfulness to God and their brothers and sisters, yes. But if you admire a man for his ministry, then all you will do is feed his pride and ego and make it even more easy for Satan to inflate his self-life than it is for him already. Very dangerous. Don't admire people for their ministries. Admire them only for their faithfulness. So can you see that as far as we're concerned, it's us as people. Performance, everything like that is purely secondary. And you see, the reason is quite simply this. God uses us all in different ways because we're different. That is the beauty of the church. Don't expect God to use everyone in the same way. It's ridiculous. And any Christian who thinks that he's superior because they get more results than someone else just doesn't understand Christian maturity at all. Let me say, if someone ever comes into our fellowship with the idea that they're going to impress us with their ministry and uh, they think that kind of, well, I mean, three months and they'll have climbed to the top of the ladder in this church, well, I have a message for them. And if they ever come here, I sincerely hope they'll listen to this tape because the message is this. One, we're not impressed. Simple as that. We're not impressed with ministry here. We're impressed with character. We're impressed with faithfulness. We're not impressed with ministry. So if someone wants to come and impress us with their ministry, they're coming to the wrong church. And then the second point, if they want to climb the ladder of this fellowship to the top, the problem is there isn't a ladder in this church that goes to the top. So they're going to be part of this fellowship for an awful long time before they get there. There just ain't a ladder. All there is in this fellowship is Jesus. Now, he's at the top, and I'm sorry, you can't share that. You know, I mean, that is a kind of... Uh, that position is not up for grabs. There is Jesus, you see? And apart from Jesus, there's the rest of us. And that's all there is. There's nowhere else to go. You can't be Jesus, so you're just one of the plebs. And that's the lovely thing about this fellowship. We don't have an us-and-them situation. We don't have a spiritual leader and pleb situation. It's beautiful. We're all plebs. And it works. Oh, goodness. No, I, I, I forgot. They're the elders, of course, yeah, the eldership position. Well, no, not, you see, the thing about they're, they're right at the bottom anyway. They're the odd job men. So someone who wanted to get to the top wouldn't be interested in being an elder anyway. But can you see, do you get the point? We are all plebs together. We are brothers and sisters in the family of God in Chigwell. We are the Chigwell Christian Fellowship. God is our Father, and He is working on us to make us more like Big Brother, more like Jesus. Now, the thing is this. What parent worthy of the name considers some of their children to be more important or more special than their other children. Can you see that? And for whatever reason, 
For whatever reason, what parent worthy of the name thinks that some of their children are more important or more special than others? I'll tell you, God doesn't think like that, and we must make sure that we don't either. You and I, in this fellowship, in this church, in this family of God in Chigwell, we must love and we must accept each other just like God does. That is just the way we are. We must love and accept each other for ourselves alone. If you're going to love me, then it's because I'm me. Not because I can teach the Bible or anything like that. And if you've got a healing ministry, I don't love you because you've got a healing ministry. I love you because you are you. We love each other for ourselves alone. Go to John 3.16. Now, you all know John 3.16, but nevertheless, we're going to read it. John 3.16, and this is Jesus saying, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It does not say that God so loved some people in the world, but didn't others. God loves everyone absolutely the same, and so it is with us as his people as well. Now then, John 3.16 is very, very well known. But let's do something very, very interesting. Every time you read John 3.16, remember 1 John 3.16. Go to 1 John 3.16. We've seen that God so loved the world, absolutely everyone. And in 1 John 3.16, we have this. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. There you have it again. We've got to love each other like Jesus loves us. We must have no wrong motives towards each other. How do we do that? I'll tell you, you die to yourself. You lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. You forget your pride. Peace is more important than you getting your pound of flesh in an argument. Can you see? Laying down our sinful lives for the sake of our brothers and sisters. We will correct each other if needed. Yes, we will. But any time that correction happens, it's going to be because as a family we care for each other and not because we're wanting to sort each other out. Not because we're gaining some kind of personal victory because we at last managed to get them to admit that they're wrong. That is not the motive that must be amongst us in any way at all. Go back to 1 John 4. And back to verse 17 and 18. In this is love perfected in us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and he who fears is not perfected in love. That's talking about punishment or condemnation. Now, uh, Romans 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. As far as God is concerned, even when we sin, there is no fear of condemnation from God, because there isn't any. 
When you've sinned, God wants you to repent of it, not fear condemnation. There isn't any condemnation. He just wants us to repent of it. Now, if there is no fear of condemnation from God when we sin, i.e., 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, you know, when you come and say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, he doesn't give you a lecture. He doesn't say, well, I told you so. You know, I, I told you about that, and so I'm not going to give you peace, peace back for three days. I'm not going to talk to you for three days now. You've got up my nose. You've learnt your lesson, you've sorted it out, you know, you've made your bed, you lie it. Can you see, when we come to God having sinned and confess it, he forgives us, period. That's all there is. There is no condemnation from God to fear. Therefore, we must make absolutely sure that we are giving each other no fear of condemnation from ourselves either. Let's have no I told you so when someone repents. You know, let's have none of this, you know, kind of like someone confesses something and, you know, and, and kind of it's the talking point, the fellowship gossip point for a few weeks. Let's not humiliate and demean each other. It's a terrible thing to do. It's hard enough to repent of sin. Let's make it as easy as possible for each other. Let's not put the pressure on each other of wondering what other people are going to be thinking all the time. You see, we won't be shocked by each other's sins. Why not? Well, we're too aware of our own. And if you're shocked at the sins of others, I mean, if you heard one of us confess something and you're sort of, oh, oh my God, dear. oh, how could, oh, and, and he came from me all last week. Oh, dear, he's been in my, can you see? All that shows is that you haven't yet reached deep repentance for yourself. You can't be shocked at the sins of others if you truly know your own heart. Just 1 John 5 verse 2, listen to this. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. We must love each other as God loves us. We must love each other in such a way as to create an atmosphere and an environment amongst ourselves where there is security and not fear. Where there is safety and not distrust or suspicion. An atmosphere of acceptance and not rejection. An atmosphere of emotional safety. So that no one can, with any justification whatsoever, ever feel that people are after them. Because nobody is at all. We'll just end with some verses from Ephesians and then Colossians. First of all, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. And this will sum up what I've said tonight. Loving one another. First of all, Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 3, and then down into verse 31. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he's writing to a church here. He says, with all lowliness and meekness, with patience forbearing one another in love, putting up with each other. Put up with me, I ain't that bad. You can do it, you can do it. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now go down into verse 31. And he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour 
and slander. You see, these are all the wrong motives. Put them all away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Go over into Colossians. Can you see how this, what this boils down to in practice? Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, and again, writing to a church at Colossae, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, and patience, forbearing one another. And if one has a complaint against another, getting uh, sorry, forgiving each other. Not getting revenge, forgiving each other. Isn't that lovely? Not, oh, well, but what they did was wrong. Made me look silly. Well, so what? You probably are silly. We're all silly, aren't we? Can you see? Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also must you forgive. Now, that's what it boils down to. Loving each other in the same way that Jesus loves us. And I'll tell you, what we have here is the environment in which God wants us to be placed so that as God sorts our lives out, it's done in an atmosphere of safety which will make the discipline constructive. But it will not be done in an atmosphere of harshness and judgmentalism because otherwise the discipline may in fact not work at all and all we'll do is become bitter against each other and God as well. Remember, in a good family, bringing up children, discipline plus love equals emotional security. And those verses are what it all boils down to, down to. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that anything could be lovelier than being part of a proper church? Because tonight, we're defining what the proper church is. We, in the second of our priorities as a church, firstly, to love God. Secondly, we are to love one another. And as we do that, then it's going to be safe. Not safe from God, but safe from each other's sinfulness. And as that becomes the case, God will be able to do wonderful things in our lives because it will be safe for him to do so. You'll be more able to open yourself up to the church because you know that no one is going to use your giving of yourself in order to get one in to damage you in any way at all. So we are called to love one another. Next time we look at the second aspect and see that we are also called to serve one another. We will finish there.